Howdy, everybody. <clears throat> We're going to be in Ecclesiastes, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to that. And if you don't, there's a pew Bible in front of you there, and it's on page 1035. Oh, I love coffee. Hey, John, is this the one you left in here last week? I'm just kidding. That's water. It's just a joke. I hate coffee. Okay. We've been doing for, I don't know, the better part of a year, a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, attempting to move through, especially the Old Testament, and see how Jesus claimed that he's on every page, and his dynamic of how we're brought to God, what's called the gospel, is on every page of the Bible. We've been working—we started in Genesis— were to Ecclesiastes. And um, one of the things that people, I think, sometimes get a little turned around on, if you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, most people who read it just one time will say, it's just the most depressing book in the Bible. I mean, it's not even written by somebody who believes in God. It just couldn't be more terrible and depressing. And um, I tried to argue last week that's actually not true, um, and that there's two ways in which the gospel comes across really strongly in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first is, is that it kills one of the biggest idols that we have. That's a a huge Madison idol, which is the idol of knowledge. Meaning that knowledge is a great tool, but it's a terrible God. And when it becomes a God, it it makes us really feel like we know what we need to know, we are what we need to be, and it's a really a false God. And Ecclesiastes is designed to tear that idol down off its throne. Justly. And then secondly, it points us to trust in the God of the unexplainable world. That, that the, the fact that the world doesn't seem to make sense if a good and totally sovereign God was over it, and that that's a problem for us. Ecclesiastes talks about how it's, it's perfectly reasonable and actually obligatory. We should trust in the God over this world, even though it's like this, which may sound crazy to you, but that's why we have sermons. <clears throat> now I got to review a little bit from last week. Um, the book starts out in verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. In fact, utterly meaningless is a translation of the same word twice, which is like meaninglessness, meaninglessness, right? You can also translate it vanity. I talked last week about the Hebrew word that gets translated meaningless is the Hebrew word for vapor or breath or mist. So like exhaling, this stuff, right? And so how do you translate that? Life is a vapor. Life is a breath. It's insubstantial. It's transitory. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's futile. It's impermanent. It's inconsequential. But there's some places in in the book of Ecclesiastes when he says meaningless or uses this word, it actually means morally absurd. Like it's crazy that the world is like this. So the word has kind of a big range, okay? Now some people will, will say, well, okay, so but Ecclesiastes, isn't that really a book for philosophers and like deep thinkers or something? And the answer is no, because Though the, quote, deep thinkers or the philosophers among us would say, well, the world is meaningless. Everybody else still feels the problem that they articulate. So you could say it like this. The philosopher would say, vanity is, all is vanity, a breath, a vapor, humanity is meaningless. And then the worker, the husband, the housewife, the whoever would say it like this. They would be expressing feelings they wouldn't be able to necessarily explain, but they'd say something like, I'm bored and unhappy and feeling anxious and desperate about it. Because the philosophical problem of impermanence and repetition creates the emotional problem of boredom, unhappiness, and even hatred. Now, hatred might sound like it went up, we're going a little too far, and I'll get back to that in just a second. But I argued last week that everybody feels this because of the nature of the way the world is. So, for example, in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, it's, he, he's talking about the way the world is. He says that, you know, streams flow into the sea, but the seas are never full, and the streams never stop flowing. It's just just this endless cycle that keeps on going, and he says it's so repetitive that it's wearying. It's beautiful. I mean, if you've sat on a hillside and watched a river flow into a sea, it's beautiful. And it just keeps happening. It never stops. And he says that it's wearisome to us, that there's a, there's a repetitiveness in our soul that actually makes us sick of it. And yet, he says right after that, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Meaning, we never get done looking. We never get done hearing. We want life to keep going on and on and on, and yet life keeps going on and on and on, and it it wearies us and annoys us. It's a paradox. And, sorry, I should look at that. And one of the things he says in chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I've seen this burden that God has laid on people. He's made everything beautiful in its time. So the world is beautiful, but it's temporary. And yet— He's put eternity in our hearts. We want it to last, and yet 
they, that's us, cannot fathom what God has done. That is, we can't make any sense of it. So everything's beautiful. We want it to last. It's only beautiful in its time. It doesn't last. Yet we have eternity in our hearts. We want, we want things to go on. We want it to last forever. And God hasn't made it us able to fathom what it all means. Which essentially creates this problem, right? Endless wearying against never wanting it to end. We can't understand it. God hasn't allowed us to fathom its meaning, which leads to us not being able to emotionally accept it, which leads to this outburst. Everything's meaningless. Doesn't make any sense. Which leads to these unhelpful emotions. We're bored. We're anxious. We're unhappy. Even hatred. You were like, well, is that for real? But this is what he says in chapter 2. He says, I took delight in all these things I did, and then I really looked at them. And I saw that, like, you know, I'm going to die like anybody else. My son's going to have to inherit all the stuff that I built, and he's probably going to be an idiot. And Rehoboam was an idiot and lost everything. And um, he said, so this was his emotional response. And this is a very intelligent person. He says, so I hated life, and I hated everything I worked for. And he's not, it's not apologetic about that. He thinks it's a perfectly rational, perfectly reasonable response to the way the world really is. Which, if you see the world, if you see this problem in the nature of the world, how it's paradoxical for human beings, you've got four basic options. You can be cynical because the world's unsolvable. There's just no answer. You'd be like, there's no answer. Right? Or you can be hedonistic about it. You can say, well, there isn't an answer, so you better, you better live while you're here. You better do it. Whatever makes you happy, you better go do it. You only live once. Right? Which I'm, I'm told that's a saying, now like some kind of acronym. And then, <clears throat> and then you could say, well, I'll just do both. I'll, I'll do whatever I think will make me happy, and I'll be cynical about any real answer so I can be happy and make other people unhappy at the same time. Which everybody will want to marry you. And then fourth, <clears throat> you can actually say the world is totally unsolvable. That's totally right. And yet I still believe in the God of that unsolvable world. Right? Those are basically your options. So then he starts—he talks about wisdom. Of course, he talks to wisdom all through the book. And you might think, well, that's kind of odd. Because if he starts with, like, everything's meaningless, and then in chapter 2 he goes, well, wisdom—I looked at folly and wisdom, and I realized everybody dies, no matter how wise or stupid they are. And so why would we care? Right? And then yet, all through the book are these discourses on wisdom. Wisdom's better than folly because— you know, at least somebody who's wise isn't dumb and they have a brain in their head. I mean, it's literally what he says just about, right? Sorry, I just, I just said, I just did my biggest pet peeve on the word literally. I apologize for that. Okay. He very nearly actually said those words. Um, and yet he says wisdom is better than folly. He's, but wisdom, because wisdom is a great tool, but it's a terrible God. Right? And when you look at the wisdom that he shares, the wisdom that he shares in Ecclesiastes, as opposed to the book of Proverbs, is wisdom that accepts the fact that we live this vain, transitory life of toil and difficulty in a world in which we can't make sense of. If you lived in a world that didn't look like God completely governed everything because things seemed to happen by chance, the world seemed unsolvable, it seemed morally absurd, nothing happened the way you thought it should, yet you live in these roles and toil and you want to be happy in it, how would you live if you believed all that and there was a God above all of that? What would you do? What would be wisdom in that context? And I shared last week, it was at least these six things in the book of Ecclesiastes. One, you would accept your lot in life that God has given you because you recognize that if you rebel against it, you're going to rebel against reality and it's not going to go well. Better to accept that you're a human than try to be a God. Right? And that what that looks like is taking enjoyment in your life in its transience and toil. So instead of wishing you didn't have to go to work and wishing you had more vacation days— Right? Instead of wishing there were 48 weeks of vacation and only four weeks of work, or for some of us, 50 and two, right? Instead, you should say, I'm going to go to work and take pleasure in, in what I'm going to do at work today. I'm going to take pleasure in the people I work with. I'm going to take pleasure in the work that I do. I'm going to do it as unto God. And I'm not going to dwell on the fact that somebody's going to undo what I do today. Because they are. Right? I mean, how many people do jobs where we do stuff that does not last? Right? Or at least a big portion of what you do doesn't last. Like, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be Mr. Eternity. 70, 80 percent of what I do doesn't last. How many people can't remember almost anything from my sermon four weeks ago? <laughs> Boom. Right? You're changing slowly and you don't even know it, right? 
You know, I do stuff all the time. It just gets undone, doesn't work. Some of it works, that's great. That's just life, right? And if you want to be miserable, don't accept that. And if you want to be happy and receive the gift of joy that comes from faith, here's the result. You, you take place, you don't, and, and you won't wait around for somebody to make you happy. Well, my, I got this dead-end job and I don't like it. Well, you know what? You can be happy doing almost anything. Like, listen, when I was in seminary, my job was this. I had menus at a restaurant. I counted them out. I handed them. I said, man, why don't you take that, that table right down here on the right? Sir, can you take this table right over here on the left? I was a host at a restaurant that served like 3,000 people a night, and I got, I got cussed at with the F word almost every Saturday night when I worked the door. It was a wonderful job. I needed a job. I was growing in character. I was learning how to do evangelism with very rich Chicagoans that would come to the restaurant and very, like, blue-collar ones that worked at the restaurant. I learned a little Spanish, but I've forgotten most of it. It was just what God had me doing then. And if I couldn't be happy as a host, why would he make me a pastor so I could preach to people who had to learn to be happy as a host? Right? It was my only real job, though. I'm just kidding. That's this. Oh, I'm, I'm getting caught. I gotta go. We gotta go through this. So the other thing is, like, he doesn't give up on wisdom and science and stuff, right? He doesn't say, well, I tried to be smart. None of that works. I mean, who cares about thinking too deeply is just terrible. No, he says, with the more learning, the more. Anybody? Sorrow and pain, right? There's something in, inherently paradoxical about a lot of knowledge. And then what does he say about the whole pursuit of his life? The pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. And he doesn't give it up when it doesn't all make sense for him. Because he believes that science, philosophy, thinking, rationality are inherently good tools in which we can do terrible things or we can do wonderful things. And it, but they're not bad just because they can't be God. When things are what they are, they're often wonderful, right? Friendship and family protects and strengthens. There's that section that people like to read in weddings, like, I saw somebody with nobody to help him, and then two people are stronger together, and if one person lays down and has nobody, how will they keep warm? But two people can keep warm together, and, you know, a cord of three strands is not easily broken, right? It's a wonderful little wedding passage, right, in the midst of all the meaninglessness stuff, right? But the argument is, like, like, what is more toilsome and repetitive than family? Right? Nothing, right? Think about family. You only get to pick one thing in that whole gamut, right? If you get married, you get to pick a spouse. You don't get to pick kids. You don't get to pick parents. You don't get to pick siblings. You don't get to pick cousins. You don't get to pick anybody. You get to pick this. So be careful, right? <laughs> you just don't— you just don't get to pick it, right? And you, but yet, all through—but all, what yet, what is necessary in a world that doesn't make sense? The tribe. The people around you that are committed to you on the basis of something bigger than how well things go. The people who are there through thick and thin. So, so, something's got to be thicker than water, as they say. And it used to be blood. And when things are going terrible for people, what is the most therapeutic thing they can, that can happen to them? Right? Have, having coffee with you? No. Being invited into this space of peace you've created with your family. One of the things Lex and I have tried to do is because I'm, I, I want to preach this whole creating a space in which the kingdom of God reigns, which is like your home, your area. Right? We tried to do this at our house. Last year, there was a girl that had been to church a few times. She'd come to our house. She said, she said, there's something. She's like, she's, sometimes I think about God, but she says, when I'm here in your house, it's like being at a spa and being at peace. Like it's, it's like a totally different kind of place. And she'd walk in my garden, and my wife and I and her would talk, and she'd talk to my children, and there was something about that half acre that was different than the rest of her world. This week— I was talking with a guy, he was leaving my house, and we, we just talked about his life and about Jesus and some things that he was struggling through. And he said, the last thing he said before we walked out of my house was this. He said, he says, whenever I leave this place, I feel like the weight is just lifted off of me. Right? That's what you, that's what can happen with a family, right? And it's not just for the people in the family, right? It's the people— you can bring into that who can be soothed and comforted and protected by that. And friendship is very similar. Real friendship. But I can't preach about friendship right now. That would be a great sermon, though. Um, and then five, diversifying your enterprises, right? 
why, why not? If you believe in God, why wouldn't you put all your eggs in one basket and then pray for God to bless it? You see, part of this wisdom, he believes in God, but he says, listen, the way God providentially rules over the world to show us human beings that our lives are going to end and things don't work out the way we feel like it and that we're absurd is it looks like the world is governed by chance in a lot of ways. And so therefore, don't put all your eggs in one basket and then just pray for it. Put all your eggs in Jesus spiritually because you can't put all your eggs in multiple baskets spiritually. But in your life, he's like, plant in the morning and then weave something in the evening and try to make your living in a couple of different ways because you don't know what's going to happen, right? Like my, my 10-year-old asked me what job she should get driving home from basketball yesterday. We're driving home from basketball in a harrowing snowstorm for my rear-wheel drive only truck. And I'm trying to do this, and she's like, Daddy, what job do you think would be best for me? And I'm trying to, I'm trying to think how to explain to her that I have no idea what the job market is going to look like, if there, and if there will even be any jobs for humans by the time she graduates from high school, you know? And, I, you know, and, and I'm also trying to not spin off the road. And it's, it's, I mean, I have no idea. But what's my, what's your, what's a good advice to kids? Learn a lot. Be interested in lots of different things. Learn how to work with people. Learn how to learn how to function in organizations. Learn how to deal with superiors. Learn how to do all that stuff because you have no idea what the future is going to hold. And almost everybody, when they lose their job to get another good job, they almost always have to change professions. Vast majority of times now, these days. Because those, usually when we lose jobs now, those jobs don't exist anymore. Or at least not in the volume that was necessary for us to have a job in that field. Right? It's right here, 3,000 years old. 3,000 years old, right? He's at, they're ahead of CNN business, right? And then remembering God and standing in awe of him, he goes, listen, you might think it's all kind of chance and blah, blah, blah. He's like, listen, don't let it fool you. Stand in awe of God, right? Sorry, I keep pushing the arm button. And he, in, in 5.7, he says exactly that. He says, look, with much dreaming with many words is meaningless. And he means that he's talking there about religion. Because that chapter is about going to the temple and worshiping and all that and making vows to God. He says, listen, with much dreaming and many words is meaninglessness. He's saying, listen, lots of what goes on here at church, it's a vapor. Doesn't mean a thing. He said, but listen, stand in awe of God, right? Later on, he says this in chapter 8. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. We'll come back to that verse in a little bit. So if you look at his teaching on wisdom, essentially, he rules out four of those, three of those four options, right? Because if you look at the kind of wisdom he offers, he's not offering cynical wisdom. It's not, well, the world doesn't mean anything. All there is is what we see and what we can empirically touch, and so therefore we better act like that. His, his wisdom is not derived from atheism, is it? When you read through the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, it's not atheistic, pragmatic, this is the best we can do with what we have, let's play the odds kind of wisdom. He still says, the best thing a human can, being can do is to enjoy their life and to do good, moral category. And the argument for why we should do good in the book of Ecclesiastes is not karma or cultural karma. If you're good to people, they'll be good to you. That's not the argument he makes. He says, God will judge, stand in awe of God, I know things will go better ultimately for the God-fearing, even though wicked people live just as long. It's not an atheistic argument. His wisdom is not cynical, but it's not naive. Which is one of the things I would say for, for those of you who are, who are young or getting old. When you're young, some people will flatter you and you need to immediately distrust them. Okay? There's nobody so consistently wrong as the young. It's just a fact. Okay? It's not your fault. You'll say that about the next generation, you'll be right. Right? The, the thing that has to happen when you're young is not to get so exercised about a, about a political or some moral moment that you're going to fix. Because you're almost certainly not going to fix it. You might make it a little better, which would be awesome. But the thing that needs to happen is you need to lose your naivety without becoming cynical. That's what has to happen. You have to not be naive and so that your, ide your, your ideology that like your idealism that things should be better than this, this isn't okay. You, that's got to be okay. But listen, if that burns white hot, you know what's going to happen? 
you won't be able to accept the toil of life when you graduate from college. Because what's going to happen is you're going to be white hot about changing the world. You're going to graduate or you're going to get out into the workforce you're gonna, and you're going to get a job where you do the exact same thing every day that somebody's going to undo almost as fast as you do it. And then you're going to maybe get married or whatever and you're going to take out the trash and do the dishes and do things repetitively. And if you, you're still an idealist, you're going to hate your life because you're not going to have enough impact. You're not going to be doing enough. You're not going to be out there enough. You're going to And so you're going to have this enormous problem which will either lead you to blow up your real life or to become a cynic. But if through God's wisdom you stand in awe of God and you recognize you're going to have a life of repetition and toil, that you're going to embrace the sovereignty of God in that and take pleasure and joy in it while recognizing that there's a lot of stuff you can't change, but yet not becoming content with the fact that the world's the way it is. You've got to hold all that together. And that will be the last point of the sermon. We'll get, come back around to that full circle. But what it means is, is that hedonism isn't okay either. You don't run off and do whatever makes you happy. He says, what's the, what were the first two points? You accept what you really are, and you take pleasure in what you really are, in the toil and repetition of what that is. So you might think the best answer for human life is hedonism, but Solomon doesn't. Coming all the way full circle, he does not believe that the answer is cynicism or hedonism, and he probably doesn't believe that if they're, if they're false apart, they're right together. Which leaves one option in his argument, right? So how do you do that? How do you trust God in an unsolvable world? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying, you look at the world, it looks unsolvable, you'd say, oh, God probably isn't really there, and he is, and you have to trust him, even though the world is like that, Right? And part of the reason for that is to understand why he's saying God has created the world that way. Why does God use a world that is like that? Why govern a world in that way? Right? And it's partly because the God of wisdom that would make us feel like the world was okay has to die, and therefore the world can't make sense, or we will worship the God of our own minds. You see, if you believe— if you accept that our propensity as humans is to build a logical or rational or philosophical or scientific edifice of understanding all things, and when we can explain things, they belong to us, and we kind of—that that will become a God to us. And listen, I'm not talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about you and me, okay? Because listen, <clears throat> I've had—listen, I've, I've had people confront me and say, Nick, you read this stuff and you philosophical this and blah, blah, blah. Listen, if I took the real Jesus out of your theology— would your, would your philosophy of life still be the best one you know going? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because like, on one level I'd want to say, yeah. But on one level I'd want to be like, well, I probably shouldn't work if you take Jesus out of it. Right? In some ways, Christians, people just like you and me, we think we believe in Jesus— but we don't really function out of trust in Jesus. We just put together a really good system. And it's not like that's wrong. It's just, it can become kind of its own God, right? Like when one of the things we think we find out it's wrong, what does that do to us emotionally? Do we go, oh, hallelujah, finally. We got that sucker out of the system. Or do we go, ooh, that hurts, right? I go, ooh, that hurts. That's wrong, right? So, okay, we got to go through the logic of this. First, the first thing is, if you want to read the book of Ecclesiastes and understand the argument well, you've got to recognize that there are two different kinds of wisdom being talked about. One is what you might just call standard wisdom, and that is wisdom as answers, right? So it's applicable pieces of real experiential truth, okay? So, for example, <clears throat> ants work really hard, and they seem to have plenty of food in the winter, right? So working hard is good. Provide for yourself. That's good, right? Or, um— Um, there, there's this one that I read when I was in college that said, it's this in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. Um, a fool takes offense immediately, but a wise man overlooks an insult. Right? Why? Right, the fool blows up, right? So that one has explosive anger, the other doesn't have explosive anger. That's one point. The second point is, why does the wise man overlook the insult? It doesn't say the wise man restrains himself when insulted. That's not what the proverb says. It says that the wise person overlooks the insult. What's he overlooking to? Well, there's only, there's only really, I think, two logical possibilities there. Either he's overlooking the insult to the person and recognizing that this insult is coming from somewhere. So I'm having an argument with my wife. She tells me I'm a blanking idiot, right? And this, which she would never do. 
this is hypothetical. And she really wouldn't, by the way. Um, but she might be saying that I'm being insensitive. Let's just say that. And I could say, I'm not being insensitive. You're being insensitive, right? I could, that's one approach, right? Or I could say, why is she really calling me insensitive? Because I disagree with her argument, and she's a reasonable person. And so there's something I don't understand, or something's going on here. Like, what is going on here, right? And it's condescending to say to your spouse, what's this argument really about? So you got to figure it out. You got to overlook and be like, okay, what? There's a pattern here. Like, I've been doing this for a month or something, or what, what's going on, right? Or you overlook the insult to see if there's truth in the criticism, right? So if she's like, you're being insensitive, I'm like, no, I'm not. I could be like, well, wait, well, maybe I am being insensitive. I should probably think about that. And I can't think about that while I'm angry about it, right? And so wise people look at the person and try to figure out where this is coming from. And then they look at the insult and they go, that's probably partially true. They thought they could get away with saying that, right? It's probably partially true. What part of it is true? And in what way can this person have just helped me? Even if they were trying to hurt me. See, that's wisdom, right? That really helped me when I read that when I was, you know, I was 20 years old and it made a huge difference for me. Or, um, Engraved on my wedding band, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find, right? Everybody says they're going to be a good man, and then how many actually are? Not near as many as say they're going to be. And I wanted that with me all the time. <clears throat> because no grown-ups were betting on me when I got married. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, these are all pieces we know that they're true because you can see them experientially. They make sense. You can understand them, but they don't explain the whole world. See, there's another kind of wisdom that Solomon is talking about, which you might just call comprehensive wisdom. It's, it's a singularity. It's the comprehensive understanding of everything, how it works together, the, the interpretation of all things, the scheme of the whole world, right? And that's what he was looking for. It's the answer. It's what he wanted. He says, he, this is one of the phrases in Ecclesiastes 7.27. He says, um, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. You see, he had all these Proverbs, right? The, the narrative books of the Bible says that he spoke tens of thousands of Proverbs. He said, he said, now what I was trying to do is to take all these and to put them all together and get the answer. And for that, the second step of the logic here is, is that that kind of wisdom, comprehensive wisdom, is unattainable and the world is unsolvable. Um, he says in, he says in chapter 8, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, right? So he's thinking inside his head and he's looking outside of his head. He's trying to take everything in, his eye not sleeping day or night. Then I saw all that God has done. So he took it all in and he said, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Or the chapter before, all this I tested with wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Right? So he's like, you can't. Now, does that mean that we stop doing science and philosophy and we stop trying to be rational? We stop trying to make the world better? It doesn't. And does it mean that biology should never talk to economics, which should never talk to philosophy, which should never talk to theology? You can't live like that. But you can be less naive about it without being cynical. You can believe in wisdom as much as Solomon believed in it. And under wisdom, for him, when he says wisdom, he's talking about what we would call science, empirical studies, philosophy, rationality, all that stuff would be under wisdom for him. And he's saying he totally pursues that. That was the great pursuit of his life, and yet he lost his naivety that it was all going to come together and he was going to understand all things. Right? So then the question then becomes, why on earth does God do it that way? Right? Why, why would God be perfectly sovereign, deeply loving, and yet reign and rule over a world that's like this? A world that is intentionally unsolvable, right? And here's the clear statement in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, I've seen the burden God has laid on men, right? Humanity has this burden. And it says, he's made everything beautiful in his time. 
He's also said eternity in the hearts of men, and they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There's the problem, right? And then he says this a couple verses later. God does it, purpose statement, so that men, that's all of humanity, will revere him. That is, not the world, not our pleasures, not our knowledge, not ourselves, not anything else but him. Both because he's greater than these meaningless, vaporous creations, and because he doesn't leave enough to hope in so that we can hope in them. The way it's supposed to work, however, isn't just that. It's supposed to wake up human beings. Because you, you might say, well, Nick, that's a really brutal way to get us to, to buy into him. And that's, that's true, in a way. That's true in a way. But it depends on what you think the human being's greatest need is. Right? You see, because it, it, it could have gone this way. God could have, in theory at least, created a world that totally made sense. Justice always happened. Things went just the way they should go. All of that worked just fine. He didn't allow sin to come into the world. And then he created human beings as sufficiently intelligent to put it all together. At least theoretically, God could have done that. Okay? It's probably not possible because I think God created the best of all possible worlds. But let's, theoretically, as a thought experiment, you could say that. Now, what's, what's the likely result of that? <clears throat> well, if human beings can ascend to the knowledge of all things, they end up kind of up there where God is. And the possibility that a being like that could go awry is decently strong, especially if the prehistory about Satan is right. Right? Because that's exactly what he was, right? And all the angels. What happens with the way this system goes is this. God is here, you try to understand things, and you find that there's a lot to understand. There's a lot that does make sense, but it doesn't actually all come together, right? So you're approaching what you think is like total knowledge, and you're like, whoa, that's really, okay, that, yeah, that, and you realize there's somewhere to go. But then right when you think you're going to get there, you crash and burn terribly. What does that produce? That produces the conception that there is a top that you can't get to, and you end up all the way at the bottom. Now, if our greatest need is our greatest desire, which is an answer— that is a terrible way to create the world, right? Like if you sit in cafes with people and talk about Jesus, there's going to be the two biggest ex- except objections you're mainly going to get are going to be the problem of suffering. Well, if God is good and he's loving and he's all-powerful, why does the world stink? Right? You ever heard that one? Probably you have. You probably thought it this week, right? And then the other is the hiddenness of God. Why is the God more active? Why does he show himself more? Why isn't there more? And then almost every other objection can be reduced to one of those. Even the objection of pluralism is a question of revelation. Things are plural because God's not clear enough, right? Well, if our biggest need is an answer to those questions, then this is a bad way to create the world because it's just confusing, okay? But you see, the Bible seems to come to the table with a different assessment of our greatest need. Our greatest need is something that we will not accept because, it, because it's a sickness. See, our greatest need is to be humbled, according to the Bible. Hubris. Pride, in its various forms, is the most blinding thing in human existence. It makes us unable to be what we were meant to be, unable to be happy as actual human beings, unable to love each other, and unable to do anything we were meant to do. And therefore, our greatest human need isn't an answer, but a breaking. And therefore, a world in which we can see that there's something bigger, but that crushes us to little pieces, is exactly the therapy humanity requires. Right? And what we end up needing to see then is something about ourselves. I don't know if you remember the picture from the first part of the sermon or from last week, but some people didn't even notice that she's serving a golden retriever. Okay? Now, the thing is, though, if you see that and you're like, why is she serving a golden retriever? One of the first things that you should think is, there's not supposed to be a golden retriever on the platter. One of the first things you think is, "Uh uh-oh, that's photoshopped. And then the next thing you should think is, what else is photoshopped? The minute you see something in a picture and you know something's photoshopped, the very next question is, well, what else is photoshopped? Right? Her face. Do you see that curve? That's not right. So apparently, whatever woman this was essentially originally cut from, they didn't think her face was pretty enough, and so they cut her face off and put this girl's face on there. Apparently, she looks like a 60s housewife to them, okay? 
And you see, in some ways, when the world, when the meaningfulness of the world breaks down, and you're trying to make sense of that breakdown, and you start asking questions about it, what it's supposed to lead you to is some of the other problems and the problems that you couldn't see before until you started asking these questions. And you see, that's exactly what Solomon finds. You see, he doesn't find an answer to the world, but he finds a couple of things he wouldn't have faced otherwise. And one is that we are a tiny, insignificant vapor as human beings. Now listen, death is like religion in this sense. Everybody says they believe in it, and nobody does. Except more people say they believe in death, and fewer people actually believe in it. Death is the great nominalism. Belief in name only. We all say we believe in it. None of us do. One of Jonathan Edwards, at 19 years old, he realized that one of the resolutions he was going to make for his whole life, and he does this actually three times, he says, I will think early and often and commonly and in a disciplined way about my death. And the reason he did that was because he looked at the breath of humanity and realized nobody did that. He was just like everybody else. And if he lived like everybody else, that's how he would live too. And what he needed to realize is that he was a vapor that was about to die. He needed to realize that at every moment of his life. And so it became one of his resolutions, right? And that's what he says here. This is right after that passage about the burden God has laid on men. Right after that, he says this. And then I saw—now notice this. Saw, thought, thought. So he's going to see something, and then he makes two reflections on it. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought, in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for everything, for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Okay, what does that actually mean, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been to court. Okay, I've only ever been a traffic court. But here's what most—most middle class, especially white people, who have been to college believe that if anything ever happened to them that created a legal problem, it would be expensive because they'd have to hire a lawyer, but that they'd get justice. Right? Okay, let me just explain to you—let me just tell you one thing that does not happen in court. Okay? Justice. That's reality. Okay? Now, most people don't know that. You don't know that until you get divorced, until you go through a custody battle, until you get accused of a crime, until something very significant, until you get sued by your business, that you have to give a bunch of money back or something like that, that you earned, until something like that happens to you, you probably think that if you ever had to go to court, everybody would be perfectly reasonable, the judge would see the truth, they'd decide according to the truth, the law would be properly applied to you, and that you would get justice. That is not what happens in court. And that is not because lawyers and prosecutors and social workers and judges are worse than everybody else. It's not that. It's not that. They're as good as anybody else. Those are all noble professions. Christians should go into them in droves. Okay? It's just, there's—it's impossible to make that work. Everybody lies. Social workers can't be there all the time. Judges are not omniscient. You're like, if you watch Judge Judy, you'll think that judges just know who's lying. They just act confident. They don't know. It's impossible. And so they just do the best they can. It's a terrible system. And then you've got this like, well, what's therapeutic and what's just? And they're often not compatible with each other. And you're trying to figure out what on earth to do, and it's impossible. And so Solomon says, here's what I learned from watching the legal system work. One, this is clearly not when God meets out justice. Which means he's not an atheist. First of all, that interpretation of the book is wrong. But it also means he just recognized this is not— this, when, when we do justice in courts, that's not when justice happens. That doesn't mean we don't try the best we can. It just isn't when it happens. That's his theological view. But his empirical view, what does it teach us in this world that we can learn through the empirics of, of science and wisdom? Here's what it means. Nobody is going to protect you. That's what it means. You think there's some, there's some safety net that's going to catch you. You think that if the world turns against you, there's this thing out there called justice that's going to save you. The court's going to help you. The lawyer's going to be on your side. Everything's going to go the way it should go. It's not going to go the way it should go. Even if you win, there's nothing to protect you. Just like a dog has nothing to protect him and he dies. That's what your life is like. That's the argument he's making. Perfectly clear. Right? 
And he, sa- he says, that right after this, he says, well, I'll get to that in just a minute. I don't want to use up all our time here. You probably think I've probably used it plenty, but we're, we're almost there. Um, the second is that it's not the world that's morally absurd. In, in a certain perspective, the world looks morally absurd. But when you begin to start thinking about it really carefully, what you end up realizing, it's, it's because we're morally absurd. And you will never accept that until it's the very last thing you can think. Right? I can't remember if it was Chesterton or Muggeridge that said, depravity is the most unbelieved doctrine of Christianity in the world. It's the only one that's absolutely empirically verifiable. And yet, it's one of the only doctrines that Christianity holds that virtually no other religion in the world holds. I don't know of any other religion in the world that actually holds the doctrine of depravity that Christianity does, which is this. Not that people are bad sometimes, or that people make bad choices, or even that people are nothing but bad. The Christian doctrine of depravity is this. You are created in God's image, incapable of immense, almost godlike good, and you're bent like a broken stick. You're twisted on the inside and wicked, and when these two come together, good heavens. When this kind of capacity comes together with this kind of darkness— it is insane what can happen. There's no other religion that teaches that quite that way. He, so there's this point where he's trying to figure out what's in chapter 7. It's like his last pass at it, right? It's like his third pass at like trying to put it all together. And he goes, I tested this by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise. In this context, meaning to put it all together. And he says, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Right? Then a few verses later, he says this. This only have I found. I've come to one conclusion when I tried to put all the other. There's only one thing that actually brings most of this together, and that is this, that God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. You see, when you start thinking about this, you go, okay, wait a second. In chapter 3, he talks about how we don't get justice in court. In chapter 4 or 5, he talks about how people are oppressed by government. In other places, he talks about how people are treated unfairly in other ways. He, he talks about, um, you know, seeking pleasure after this. And, and, and then at some point, you go, okay, wait a second. See, for a while, we were thinking the common denominator in all this was God, right? And it's true. And so on some level, God is the common denominator in all of it. But there's another common denominator in all of it. It's humans. Right? This is, this, is, this is a funny argument to have when people talk about religion creating nothing but violence and bad stuff in the world, right? People are like, well, listen, religion creates nothing but like violence and killing. You know, you've probably heard this, this argument before. Here's the problem. In scientific terms, there's no way to isolate the variable to religion. Because what do you have to have to have a religion? You've got to have somebody who believes it, right? And that's going to be a human. So you can't actually look at any phenomenon in the world and say, oh, religion created that, or, right? On, because any phenomenon that that is, you've also got humans by definition. There's no such thing as a re- religion without humans, right? So you've got all this destruction created by religious people, right? And so the only way to make that work is if you had a context in which there was religious people, and then you had non-religious people, and the non-religious people were all care bears, Right? And just loving, caring, didn't hurt anybody. We're, we're just trying to make up for all the bad things religious people did, right? And then on the other side, you had all these awful religious people who were creating havoc in the world, right? That would show that religion creates problems, right? Now, the counterfactual would be is if you had religious people and they created both problems and good things, and then you had non-religious people and they created both problems and good things, and that would demonstrate that the variable creating the problem is the people, right? Now, which is reality? That the irreligious people are wonderful and the religious people create all kinds of suffering, crime, and—or that all human endeavors have people that do good things and people that do terrible things, whether it's secular or religious, right? Now, mind you, it's clearly the second one. I mean, you've got to be in la-la land not to see that, right? But listen, our secular friends can't see that, and there's a whole lot of religious self-righteousness about us that they can see that we can't see. And there's a lot of stuff that you just can't see when you're in it. And it's not until Solomon gets here that he goes, oh, oh, stink. <laughs> He's working worse all the way through. It's all meaningless and blah, blah, blah. He goes, oh, and he gets down and he goes, wait a second here. There's one thing that's like dead flat obvious. We're terrible. He made us good, and we have gone after many schemes. We're terrible. It's us. 
We're nothing and we're awful. That's a vapor. Now that's meaningless, right? And in the book, there's two human responses to this, right? There's the human response of accepting your life, right? Accepting, taking pleasure in your toil, in the work of your life, accepting your lot, and living fully human in the thing God has actually given you to do in your real life, right? Acceptance. And there is scheming. God gave us a life to live, and we're going to be cynical or hedonistic or both, and we're going to do whatever we want to do to try to make whatever we want to make. We're going to blame God, and we're going to be chasing after many schemes. And we're going to act like our life is, is something more than a vapor. You see, if you know your life is a vapor, you're not going to spend it. You're going to invest it. Right? Anything that goes by like that, and you can either spend it or invest it, what's the only logical—I mean, not logical, but what's the only sensible thing to do, right? It's to invest it. Once you realize that, the problem of suffering— and the problem of the hiddenness of God that has been devouring you from the inside since you were like a post-pubescent half-thinker is an act of the grace of God. It's an act of his deep therapeutic love to save and heal you from the inside out. It is designed by him to break you down to the very bottom to where you can no longer ascend the hill, to where you are in dust and ashes, and you recognize not only are you nothing functionally, but you're nothing morally. And there's just nothing left. And it's in that place that God finds human beings for redemption. That is the place of trust, because you got no other options. All that's left is, wait a second, but maybe over all of this still stands the one who had to humble me who can give me joy and happiness in the toil and lot of my actual life. It destabilizes—the meaningless of the world, it destabilizes our happiness and joy that we've cobbled together in other ways. It forces a binary decision. It's either this or that. It's not some funny thing in the middle. It's all meaningless. So either you become a cynic and a hedonist, and you just chase whatever you want, just be Dorian Gray, or you can—you can believe— but, but the middle ground gets burned out. And you can't wait forever because there's a growing intensification of the anxiety and the boredom and the trouble created by having a turn in your hearts. There's, there are people in this room that you're thinking about walking out of your marriage and just having half custody with your kids. You just want out of your life and your job and whatever. And you think it's because your life is bad and your life is hard and people have been unfair to you. And it's because, it's, here's the real reason. It's because you were created to have eternity in your heart and you want something more than this. And so you think acquiring something different from this will somehow help and it will not help. All it will do is it will give you into your desires over against your moral being, and it will split you in two as a human being, and the one part of you will fight the other and crush your very humanity. It'll destroy you. It might destroy you forever. And therefore, the weight that's been crushing you is not God not loving you. It's, it's God loving you enough to not let you be happy in this middle zone of nothingness, denying death, denying our moral lostness and our spiritual bankruptcy, and calling us to something else, to either your intentional self-destruction or your release to belief and trust in the one who is sovereign over all things and is drawing you to himself. I don't have time for that right now. So the conclusion of the book ends up coming in chapter 12. He says, listen, therefore, here's, here's the matter. Remember your creator and do it when you're young. Do it early. Do it as soon as you can remember anything. Believe in God. Believe that he's there. Believe that he cares. Believe, trust in him and follow his commandments and live the life he's laid out for you to live. Even if it feels like toil to you, if it feels like a lot that you wish you could change, live it fully and take pleasure in it because God gives pleasure in it. Right? Look at the second verse. No, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? To eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of your toil. 
And then what does he say that is? This is the gift of God. You are not exhibiting the beauty of Christian joy when you are on vacation and having a wonderful time. Or having an affair and having a wonderful time. That's not when you're being—that's not when Christianity is making a difference in you, right? It's making a difference in you when you go to work every day, and you're that person. I remember, I remember when I was in England one time, listening to this pastor talking, and he, he said there was this guy in his church that he broke his arm, right? I mean, just like, and he was like in this like big cast, and he, was, he goes into work, and they're like, man, dude, it was, it's just too bad you broke your arm. He's like, he, he's like, I know, but it's, it's the best broken arm I've ever had, right? It's kind of funny. I'm sure it sounded better in a British accent. But, um, <laughs> but people are kind of like, that is a really weird way to look at life, right? We did a funeral of a guy, Howard Young, not too long ago. And one of the things that a number of people who'd been in his men's group said was, he'd always say, he'd pray and he'd say, good morning, Lord. Thank you for such a wonderful day to serve you in, right? And he lived in Wisconsin where win- winter is nine months long, right? That's, that's the difference real faith makes. When in your lot and in your toil— you experience the gift of God, which is satisfaction and joy. And when you think that through, see, there's a lot of people— let me get back to that in just a second. No, let's skip to that. Okay, so I can't talk about this right now. There's not enough time. Just listen to the other version of the sermon. Um, I'm gonna, I might gotta skip that too. Okay, so, wait, one more. Okay, no, let's do that one. Right, okay. So, Apparently I need three sermons. Think about this. Think about this. Shouldn't one effect of true spirituality be the ability to embrace and enjoy real life without making it an idol? Shouldn't shouldn't that be one of the main applications? Think about this. People talk all about about what spirituality ought to do for you. Oh, I feel so spiritual. I feel this. I got my heart rate under control. And I think I'm going to lose some weight. And like, you get all this kind of like stuff about like what spirituality is supposed to do. Shouldn't, shouldn't one of the things it do be to help you embrace reality, right? Many of the Eastern religions, part of the point of the religion is to help you see that reality isn't reality. That everything's a delusion, but not a moral delusion. You see, Christianity would be like, I agree up until the point of the kind of delusion we're talking about. In Christianity, the delusion is not what you see. It's not that John's not there. In in Christianity, you see, that's what Hinduism teaches. There is no John. There is no Nick. There's only the oneness. And we are one, and so we can love each other. Anybody who knows John and I knows that we're not one, except in Christ. Right? What Christianity does is it says this. I know you think your life sucks. I know that. I know that you you, you can't bear the fact that you're going to have to go out shopping today and think through every day of what you're going to cook for supper all week long, or that you're going to take another class on statistics, or you're going to blah, blah, blah. I know that you look at that and you go, life has to be more than this, and here's the problem. No, what was meant is that you would be more than this. That, that you would so believe in the Christ of the actual gospel— that you'd be so transformed from the inside out that you can embrace what you actually have been given and find satisfaction in it all the days of your life and to recognize that that is not a gift of your psychology, that that is a gift of God that he gives in response to faith in a world that is completely unexplicable. You don't get there because you explain the world and therefore it makes sense to you. That's how most of us deal with tragedy. That when something bad happens, we go, oh, something bad is happening. We go, and we try to figure it out. And, oh, at least I can explain it now. And your life's still terrible, but you feel a little better because you can explain it. That's crazy. I mean, don't you see that's crazy? You're like, oh, well, I can explain it. It's no different. There's, n- there's nothing different about it. That's just intellectualism. That's, that's uh, intellectual elitism gone awry. Well, because I can explain this cultural phenomenon, it's not terrible. No, it's still just as terrible as when we don't know anything about it. What's different is when, like, you can actually inhabit the thing you don't even understand and make a profound difference because you don't need the wisdom. You can live out wisdom because you trust the God of that wisdom, and then you figure it out the best you can. It's not because you give up on finding the answer, but it's because you realize you're not going to be naive about how soon the answer is going to come. You and I are going to be solving problems on incomplete knowledge mostly the rest of our lives. And if you can't accept that, you can't accept life. And you see, true spirituality has got to connect us with real life. If, if your religion can't allow you to get married 
and have children and go to work and study hard and be kind and learn what, a f- what friendship is, if, if it doesn't do that to you, it's probably wrong. If it doesn't make you, if you have to invent humanity so that you can be that kind of human based on the ideology you've bought into, it's probably a terrible ideology, even if everybody else in your culture believes it. But listen, I I was listening to this podcast this week. If you think about this, one of the things Solomon said was when we believe the truth, we, we like families, right? He's like, Right? He's like, people come together. You realize that there's strength in, the, in a group of people that you bring together, right? Now, here, the funny thing about that is a lot of times cultures that don't accept that, one of the things that happens is families start to go away. People don't even try to make them. For example, um, in Norway, which is a really secular country, um, 40% of the households in Norway are one person. They're one person. In Oslo, it's 52%. Now, but here's the thing. You can't live that out. You know what people do? They're legally one person, but then they get a roommate. And for the most part, it's not because they can't afford to live alone. It's because that you sh- people aren't supposed to be alone, and they can't get past that. And so what we get is we get these sort of like weird concoctions of relationships. And so what we have to do culturally is say, well, this is totally fine. It's totally fine. And I can't talk about why that doesn't work culturally and stuff right now. But what I, what I can say is this. I know as a man that I was not pre-programmed to be monogamous and to be a good father for four children. That did not just happen. I'm not saying I am that, but I I am monogamous. (laughs) The thing in question is whether I'm a good father of four children. Um, I am not pre-programmed for that. I, I, my experience of my own life in psychology is that I am pre-programmed to find that annoying, frustrating, not nearly conducive enough to my desires, and a problem. Okay? It is my faith in Jesus, in an inexplicable world in which I am embracing the role and toil he's given me and finding joy in it. And we, I think, too often give up on the idea that that is an enormous part of what it means to be a believer. Finding contentment in the real. But here's the thing. Do we want a faith that makes us just robotically content? in a world that's terrible. We actually don't want that, do we? But human beings should not have the weight of the world on their shoulders. We can't bear that. So how, where do you get? See, you've got to have a faith that produced profound contentment and repetitive toil, and yet a certain kind of dissatisfaction for cultural renewal, for helping other people and being redemptive, but that doesn't crush you with the weight of the world on its shoulders. How do you do that? Well, you do it by following the one who said, my life has been in vain and lived, and I have lived for toil and for nothing, but what is due me is in the hand of God. The Savior said that in Isaiah 49. And he has taken the weight of the world on his shoulders. He lived in the most, under the most unjust killing of all time. He didn't get justice. I mean, think about it this way. Why didn't God just sacrifice Jesus in the temple on the altar with angels that were worthy to touch him? Why should Jesus be murdered by the most wicked men of his generation, chanted at by the most spineless crowd of people, and be tried under the most dysfunctional justice system that could possibly exist? So that everybody's guilty. Right? Because Jesus didn't just assume our sin. He assumed the vanity and the vaporousness and the meaninglessness in the toil of his work. Jesus, where you think of Jesus like some, like rock star? I mean, every day, talking to people who wouldn't listen. Every day, healing another person, just like the last person. Every day, teaching disciples that would not change. Every day. Every day waking up. Every day eating. Every day walking to a new place. We think of it as like, oh, Jesus was, yeah, well, Jesus was awesome. And he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Every minute he was supposed to do it, whether it was taking care of his mother Right? Whether it was talking to somebody, whether he did every moment in John's gospel, he said, I do only what my Father has laid down for me to do. That's it. And you see, when we do that, 
we can be content in every minute of every day doing repetitive things that would be toilsome to anybody whose heart wasn't in God and wasn't receiving the gift of satisfaction that God gives in it. And yet, with enough discontent and just simply wanting the world to be better, not because it's our world to save and it's not because we can, but because we want to do something and we will. And that person lives very different, feels very different because they are very different than people who haven't learned the message of this book. There's a certain telling of the gospel in Ecclesiastes that I haven't found this explicitly anywhere else in the Bible. And I think we have to learn it. And if you get nothing else for the, from this whole, these two sermons, get this. If you are unhappy, anxious, desperate, and bored in the repetitive nature of your life, you haven't yet believed in Jesus the way you could. And so seek out what that is because it's there. Let's pray. Father, um, God bless, please bless the people in the children's ministry that had to watch the kids this long. And um, I pray, Father, that you'd help us now to respond to you, to love you, and to trust you in all the repetition and toil recognizing that we can trust the God who is sovereign over an unexplainable world because of who you are, what you do, and because of what we are meant to be in you. Please give us the gift of finding satisfaction in all our work when we trust in Jesus. Amen.